From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. Hello, and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Good morning. Good morning, Aaron. Hey, guys. It's nice to see you. We've got a, uh, a longtime friend of the show on this week. Uh, for his third appearance, I can't not talk to him so much that I actually previously hosted a podcast with him. Uh, my guest is Jay Kang. He has a new book out called The Loneliest Americans. Uh, you may have seen it was excerpted on the cover story of the New York Times Magazine, I guess a couple of weeks ago. It is about the concept of being Asian American and what, if anything, it means I really enjoyed the book, even as someone who has known Jay for a while and spent hundreds of hours talking to him about shit coins. I didn't actually know lots of uh, his feelings on these topics. So um, it was really interesting to hear about it in the book and get to have a conversation with him about it. I'm just going to recommend that listeners go find the first two long form Jay Kang interviews and listen back to back to back. It's a real conversation. Wow. Evan with the, uh, the triptych. Uh, we are, um, brought to you in partnership with Vox media. It's a new thing. They're helping us do the show and we thank them for it. And now here's Aaron with Jay Kang. Welcome Jay Kang. Hey, how's it going? All right. Let's just get it out of the way. Me and you host a, used to host a podcast together about cryptocurrencies. We still do. We still do it occasionally. And apparently, unbeknownst to me, you were writing a fairly serious book while I was talking to you about some of the silliest, dumbest things I've ever talked about. Yeah, I was writing the book during that period. That's true. I started, I think, around the same time we were doing the podcast. That's right. Or at least I was sort of outlining and thinking about the book during that time. I'm curious, were you asked to do this book or was the book your idea? And how did you regard the idea of being an Asian American writer writing about Asian American identity. I did want to write the book. It was my idea. And I do think that in some ways it was a synthesizing of everything I've written for the past 10 years, right? So my journalism career it started 10 years ago or 11 years ago. And, you know, since it's, I started writing about Jeremy Lin when he was like at Harvard. So maybe it was actually before 10 years ago. But I've had these thoughts for, for a while and is it possible to just get it all down in a book that makes an argument, right? And so that that's sort of like what I was trying to do. And so like, you know, I don't know, I think that people's lives can be sort of broken up into chapters. And I felt like, okay, this part where I'm writing about this one thing a lot, I, I kind of want to like figure out what I meant by all of it, you know, and, and is there a way to do this in a magazine piece? Should I do it as part of a podcast? What should I do? And I don't know, I think that book sort of made the most sense just because I'm, you know, I'm a writer. Writers write books. 
<laughs> How has your relationship been over time to writing about Asian American issues? Is it something that editors want from you? I guess I'm curious, like, in the position you're in, there aren't like a huge number of Asian American writers at the New York Times or at these other publications you've worked for. How, how do you deal with that expectation? Yeah, I mean, you know, I would say that 90% of the pitches I get are about Asian people. You know, pitches meaning like uh, publications ask me to write something. It's almost always about Asian people. If it's not about Asian people, it's about gambling. You know, so those are about... <laughs> Those are my things. I still like writing about gambling and, you know, like uh, dumb get rich quick schemes. But like, you know, I'm, I'm asked about that a lot less now than I used to be. I think at the beginning it was I was more associated with that. I don't know. You know, it's a double edged sword just because at some point I really appreciate the fact that I am, you know, in this position. And, you know, I can I think I don't know. I think I would be lying to say that it's not some position of privilege. At the same time, I am not the only voice of this. Right. And that. Sometimes people sort of see me and a few other people, like five or six other people, right? Like, and some of them are much more prominent than I am even as like what my friend would call like the mayors, you know, we're the mayors of Asian America. And yeah, I, I definitely resist that just because um, I don't want to be a mayor of anything. And we always want to just sort of be like, hey, I'm just a dude given his takes, you know? And uh, at some point I think, you know, that's probably not true anymore. <laughs> You know, uh, but I think you have to, there's part of you that does have to suppress that, right? Because then you start thinking, am I a representative for X people, right? And how does, and then you just start writing like these sort of like bloated things about, you know, where you like sort of speak in, in, in broad terms about everything. And I, I think that's bad for writing. Let's go back to the gambling thing for a second, because now that I think about it, the first thing I ever read by you, I think, was a piece that you did for the Morning News. It was a story about the uh, the feeling of losing a lot of money uh, at a casino. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Vegas, playing poker. And it's like a not totally flattering portrayal of yourself, which I would say is a theme that carries through to this book. And I'm curious, when you first started writing about yourself, um, how did you construct that character of like Jay on the page? Uh, gambling is definitely a portion of that character. I, I write about myself quite a bit. And um, I don't know if that's a plus or minus. It's just that like at some point I was a fiction writer. And um, I think that I found that I wrote best when I was writing about myself, you know, and that sort of carried over to my journalistic work, which started sort of 10 years after my you know, I had been like a failed fiction writer for a while. And I don't know, in terms of, you you look at some of the people who have been able to mix journalism and writing about oneself quite well. And I think that you have to sort of think of yourself through a journalistic lens, right? Where you're skeptical of yourself, right? You're skeptical of your own intentions and you're skeptical of your own ambitions. And I think that that is something that has been a real sort of therapeutic almost process for me. You know, it's just like, what times was I sort of bullshit? You know, like, uh, like when I was thinking this and I was saying I was doing this, was I really doing this? Right. And, um, I think it does lead to types of unsympathetic, uh, unsympathetic portrayals of oneself. Right. And yet like it can still be burnished with a type of like kind of 
I don't know. It, it can sometimes fall into like you're sort of doing it in a way that it's actually like valorizing yourself, you know, for being so hard on yourself. But I try and sort of drift, but, you know, I try and like stand on that line. I guess that's mostly where I think about. So when I was writing about myself and my history as like a sort of doomed gambler, you know, it's like every thought I had was just a lie to myself, you know, and I found that to be interesting when I started writing about it. And I also think that that's necessarily true about how we think of, you know, about how I thought about identity when I was a kid, you know, you just sort of lie to yourself quite a bit. And I guess I, I, I don't know, I find that part the most interesting about any sort of writing, which is like when, when people are sort of lying about themselves and, uh, I try and write about that quite a bit. When do those insights come to you? Do those insights come to you while you're writing or do you have those insights and therefore want to write about them? Um, I think they come later when you go look back on some portion of your life and you think like, what was I thinking at that point? You know, so like I write about this in the book a bit, but you know, and I, I think this is one of the formative experiences of my life. But when I was 19, 20 years old, I like became a tree planter and moved to the Pacific Northwest, dropped out of college and was like, meditating a lot and burning nag champa and you know like sort of living an ascetic life right like i didn't do anything i didn't eat very much i read a lot of buddhist texts right and i was very into books like uh zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance and um you know like the dharma bombs and like you know like i had sort of filled my head with a sort of vague beatnik sensibility and so I think back on it and I'm filled with like two thoughts. The first is like, it's a little embarrassing, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, like, you know, like, like when, when Chris McCandless, you know, in, into the wild goes into the wild, right? Like his head is like filled with Tolstoy, you know, like it's a little better than being like, Hey, I love like, you know, <laughs> like I love Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance, but you know, I'm a little bit more forgiving for myself for that. But, you know, I, I think about like, well, why was I doing that? You know, why such an extreme way of life, you know, like I had been at Bowdoin College and, you know, why drop out to go do this? You know, there had been nothing in my life that had sort of prefigured this where I would just suddenly become a Buddhist and walk around the hills of the Pacific Northwest and, you know, put little Sitka spruce trees in the ground, you know? And yeah, I don't know. I, I think uh, when you have those types of intense moments, like investigating them, figuring it out, I don't know. I think it's good. And I think that part of that for me at the time was like, it's like a weird way of like, kind of like figuring out what Asian-ness is, you know, <laughs> like most people like stay in college and talk to other Asian people and they, you know, become friends and they like have like potlucks and stuff like that, you know, which I think is all great where they learn about Asian American history. And for me, I was so resistant to that stuff at the time that I guess I just like decided that I was going to be like a monk, you know? And so thinking about those types of moments, I don't know. I think skeptically is like part of the book. When you're talking to Asian frat brothers or in this book, you talk to people who are sort of in the men's rights Asian community, how do people regard you as a journalist who sort of wants to talk about these experiences yet isn't like, oh, I wasn't an Asian frat or I did this kind of stuff when I was younger? I guess I think about myself at that age a lot, you know, and uh, how sort of confused I was and how everything felt so intense, right? Because it's like, well, who am I, you know? And then I was like, well, who gives a shit who I am? And then you sort of go to this other layer of, okay, well, I'm, you know, I actually believe that all life is suffering. I will invest my life in the poems of Gary Snyder and thinking about the way that 
the sun hits the axe in a beautiful day and Edmund Washington is like the point of life, right? By the way, I still think that, that a lot of that stuff is true. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's like an intense young man. And I don't know, I guess I just sort of try and understand that these are also decisions that are made by intense young people during times of great crisis for them. And for the men's rights activist Asian groups, as they're called, some of them included people who are my friends. That chapter is a thought about, okay, this person is my friend. You know, like I've, I've met them. I think they're, I don't think they're a bad person. I think they are going through something. And I think that if you approach these things through a lens of sympathy, right, and then you get something that's kind of interesting. I don't know if I always succeed in that, but, you know, I think about Mining the Gap, that documentary. The skateboarding documentary? Yeah. 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 Okay. I think Mining the Gap is like this brilliant work, right? It's extremely good. And, you know, like you, I talked to the director for this interview I was doing um, for the Times, and it was, uh, it was like the most Chris Farley show I've ever been, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I was like, yeah, you remember that scene where you did this? That was cool, you know, <laughs> because that, that movie, it sort of like wrecked me in a lot of ways. And, um, but, you know, the question I had to had was like, you know, like one of these dudes is not a good dude, right? Like he sort of has these fights with his girlfriend that turn physical, right? Like, how do you make this film that doesn't condemn him? Like not humanizing, but human, right? Like where like you sort of see the totality of a person who does bad things and, you know, he, he just said, like, I don't know, like, I don't believe in judging people. And, you know, I think that you should go that way. And I don't know, it sort of stuck with me while I was writing those chapters. I don't know, maybe people will be upset because they want a full condemnation. And, you know, I think a lot of stuff that those dudes do is bad. But I don't know, that's the approach I try and do take when, when meeting young people like that, especially the fraternity kids, you know, where I'm just like, they killed somebody. They didn't do it on purpose, you know? What they were doing is so stupid and irresponsible, but, like, why were they doing it, you know? Like, that, that's a more interesting question to me. Yeah, I mean, a thread that runs through, like, gamblers and those frat kids and the men's rights guys is they're all people who are not totally clear themselves why they do what they do, right? Like, when you talk to the, the, the men's rights guys, it's kind of like, uh, here's a bunch of cliches and some links and like, I know I feel this strongly. And, and when you've written about like online poker pros, it, it's not like, like being like philosophically interested in like why you play poker makes you very good at poker. Grinding like 10,000 hours and like three hands at once poker is generally what makes you good at poker. What do you like, what do you do when you ask someone why are you doing this? And they either spout back cliches or just say, I don't know. Like as a writer, how do you fill in those blanks? Um, well, usually I just write about myself, which I don't know is the <laughs> right way to go, go about it. I try and place myself in there. You know, there's this, okay. So there's moment and uh, I, I don't mean to bring it up again, but I think it's a very good underrated book, but you know, there's this moment in into the wild, right. Where crack hour is talking about Chris McCandless. And he breaks like, you know, and you think about this book and you're like, okay, this is like a capital J journalist writing about this, this guy from a dispassionate form. But then like Krakauer breaks the wall and he just says, I used to be like this guy. I was like an asshole, 
you know, and I was like ready to die. <laughs> you know, like I was going to climb this fucking mountain or I was going to die. And I remember reading that for the first time being like incredibly emotionally moved by it. Like, this is why I want to keep reading this book. And like this, this informs why this guy is writing this book, right? Because he's obsessed with this guy in a way where the stakes are totally real and on the page. And then, you know, that's sort of proven by like the fact that Krakauer keeps writing about Christmas, Hamlet's, right? He's like, these were the, these were the potatoes he ate, you know, and it wasn't the potatoes, was it the potatoes or was it not the potatoes? So there's all this discourse about it that sort of proves that. And I don't know, like, isn't that the best way to, I, I always just think that's the best way to sort of approach writing because you have a lot of energy around it. You should be transparent with the things that are interesting to you, even if the person can't articulate it, you know? Your job is sort of articulated for them. And you might be wrong, but, you know, they can tell you you're wrong then, you know, and you can have a conversation about it. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. One of the central like theses of your book, you write a lot about the idea of Asian American identity being kind of a, a made up idea that that there aren't really links between all of these different uh, immigrant experiences. They're kind of an uneasy alchemy of experience. So, how did you think about like building that argument when I think? Like a large number of people who are interested in Asian identity, not only are they not saying that, they think that there is a cohesive Asian American identity. Yeah, well, I, you know, the book is like meant to provoke a response, right? And a conversation, I hope, like it is in some ways a polemic, right? Even though I think large parts of it are just reported. But I think that what I've been trying to argue for the past few years and through this book is that. I think that Asian American identity right now is sort of a mess, right? Like we don't quite know what it is and that sometimes it involves, for example, South Asian people, sometimes it doesn't, right? Sometimes it includes Pacific Islander people, sometimes it doesn't. But when Asian Americans get together to do something, right? So for example, like the Asian American Journalists Association is one example of this, right? Something I've been to a couple of times or, or they have like, an AAPI panel on like the Georgia massacres, right? The people that generally come up to speak for all Asian Americans are like East Asian people or Chinese or Korean generally, some Vietnamese people. 
they're generally well-educated people who have lived very particular lives that are very similar to one another. I'm also one of those people. And I guess though the sort of contradiction I've never quite been able to get through, which does animate a part of this book, is that what does it mean to have an identity category that nobody really believes in who is not the people who are invested in believing it, you know? Like if you go, if you went to my mom, for example, in 1984, right, when she was sort of nannying kids and like we were living in a, you know, public housing in some ways, and you asked her, Jay's mom, are you an Asian American? She'd be like, what is an, what is an Asian American? <laughs> right. And then if you went up to, for example, South Asian family, right. And they, and you said, are you an Asian American? They'd be like, maybe technically. Right. And so like, and these are not even people who are sort of living in poverty. These are not people who are sort of completely outside of it. Right. Like if you go up to somebody who is a bike delivery person in New York City who like lives in Sunset Park, for example, and you say, are you an Asian American? Like, you know, chances are they won't understand what you're saying, right? And so like, what does it mean to have this identity that is placed over all these people that's supposed to be totemic that nobody really believes in? I don't know, That that's sort of the question that I ask. And then, you know, I think that there's a lot of answers, but I personally have not found like a good one as to why we should continue this. What kind of responses have you gotten to that? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. It's interesting. I understand this response, but, you know, the response from the Asian American Studies Department professors of America has been like almost resoundingly negative. (laughs) You know, like I would never say that they're trying to cancel me. I think they're arguing in good faith. Right. But it's pretty nasty. Right. And uh, I understand why they are invested in the idea of an Asian America, because that's that's their job. Right. And they're the ones with sort of the big bullhorn. And so, you know, there is a lot of sort of public there's a lot of public backlash about it. But I will say that when I talk to people privately or when I hear from people who are not part of that world, you know, and that includes everyone from like hedge fund managers to like, you know, dudes who are like living with their moms still in immigrant enclaves. I find a much more positive response from that. You know, that's what I care about more, obviously. I don't really care what Asian American studies professors think about me unless they like me. You know, and then I care. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. You've been a person, for better or worse, who is comfortable in conflict. Sometimes I will see you on Twitter and you'll just be like, have been in like a like horrific flame war with someone like an, an hour before I saw you. And you seem that you almost thrive in certain conflict situations. Is that true? Or does does this stuff weigh on you? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I sometimes wish it wasn't true. And I will say that recently I've been trying to tone it down, but then today I got in like a bunch of fights. And so, you know, uh, right before I got on with you and um, I always thought of myself as like a outsider punching up, you know, and that was sort of what sustained me, right? It was like a, if I'm being honest, like a great amount of spite and, you know, conviction that I was correct about things. And uh, that is a real animating force in the lives of young people, especially young writers. <laughs> so, But yeah, I think that like, I do sort of thrive on these ideas because I don't know, like it sort of sharpens your thinking quite a bit, right? You feel like intellectually alive in a way. And um, 
you know, I, I wrote this book to be like a provocation in a lot of ways, right? Like I want people to read it and get mad about it or engage with it in that sort of way. And I think that you're right. Like you're right to point that out. But yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't understand like when people say that we should have an Asian American identity, right? Or that Asian American identity exists or that Asian American identity is like a thing that is not just like a HR term, right? Or a way in which people organize themselves in college or in the corporate workspace. I guess I always just ask for like the examples of it. Like, what is it outside of that, you know? And still waiting for that answer. And, you know, it would be fine if this was something that I didn't think was particularly harmful, you know, but I do think that part of what I've come to realize over the past 10 years of writing about this is that it is sort of harmful. You know, I spent a lot of time in Flushing in immigrant communities reporting, both for uh, the show I did on Vice and for the New York Times Magazine. And you spend a lot of time in those communities, you realize that like literally nothing that you hear about Asian Americans is true about these people, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like these people have different politics, right? They have different lives. They're not Sandra O, oh, you know, they're not people who celebrate Sandra O, oh, right? I love Sandra O, oh, but these are people who, who are recent immigrants and their lives are detailed more by like the countries that they came from than their new country, which makes sense because they spent their whole lives in their old country. And I think that it's just led to a complete mischaracterization of who these people are, you know, of who Asian Americans are. And I guess, like, if anything, the book is just a provocation to just be like, can we at least be accurate, right? Can we stop pretending that it's like a whole bunch of people who are aligned with like every progressive cause in America? And what happens if we're not honest about it? Well, these people just keep organizing themselves. They're very good at organizing. They organize things like the protests against Peter Lang's arrest, right, with the Kai Gurley shooting. They organize anti-affirmative action groups. They get money from donors on the right. They grow even more. And I think that if you believe in a progressive vision of Asian America, like the worst thing you can do is like just pretend that Asian America is progressive. When you were writing this book and when you've written about these issues previously, are you imagining a audience of like what kind of person is reading this? Yeah, a little bit, you know. I really want other immigrant groups to read it. I think that Asian people will read it, and I think I wrote it in a lot of ways for, as many narcissists do, you write it for your younger self, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, that that was the number one thing. I was like, well, what would I have wanted to read when I was 20 and going crazy in Seattle? Like, you know, like, like, I, like I was like, there's something wrong with me, you know, like really just, like I felt like I had reached enlightenment at some point, you know, sort of quasi-enlightenment, but, you know, I, I just, I didn't eat really. I didn't drink that much water. I spent, all I did was go to baseball. Like, it's like the craziest monk vision, you know? I went to like every Mariners game, you know, and sat in the bleachers. You know, it's like, it's it was a strange time in my life. And, um, and I was like, well, what would I have read that would have snapped me out of it and maybe given me some sort of hope? So I tried to read it, write it for myself at that age in some ways. But the larger question to that is that um, the book is really about the 1965 Immigration Act, right? The Hart Seller Act. And all these people, this is sort of the opening of America to immigrants from around the world, right? Before immigrants, 
in the early, early days, basically anyone who wanted to come to America could come to America. We had open borders, right? And then we have all these restrictive immigration laws that started in the late 19th century. And then basically they were like, everyone except for uh, Jews and Asians, you know, <laughs> which was like sort of the rule for a long time. And then 1965 Act opens this up, right? And it's the tireless work of like Emanuel Seller, who was a Jewish uh, congressperson from New York City, who like basically was just like the shame of America is that the restrictions on Immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe basically led to the slaughter of like tens and hundreds of thousands of Jews who couldn't have come to the United States. Part of the Hartzeller Act also opens up immigration from Asia. And basically what they're saying, if you listen to like LBJ or RFK at the time, who were sort of the sponsors of the bill, they're like, well, they're not really going to come, you know? It's like, we passed this bill, but they're not really going to come. It's like, nope. You're, and then, you know, you hear, have all these like nativist guys be like, no, they're going to come, you know, <laughs> like they're going to come. And basically in the end, they did come, you know, like the natives, like the native dudes are right, you know, <laughs> they, they came. You know, now what we have is America that's very different than it was in like the late 1960s, 1965, late 1950s, right? Instead of having two races in America, basically, now we have many. And so, you know, it is a look at how America changed post-1965 through an Asian-American lens. But I don't know. I desperately want people who are Latino to read it. I want African immigrants to read it, you know, and I, I think that they will find a lot of kinship in it. I don't know. In my life, I've found that, like, the people I feel the most connected to, it's not necessarily about race or Koreanness, you know. It's like people who... Family, families came over post-1965 and kind of grew up like mine. You know, like when I was a television correspondent, I always felt that way about my uh, producer who was uh, Nigerian. You know, I always felt like, oh, actually, our lives are very similar, you know, and there's so many connections here. We grew up in a lot of ways. There are differences in terms of our race and the way that we're racialized, but like, man, there's a ton in common, right? And so I, I hope that a lot of people read it from that perspective. For you... You're writing to this younger version of yourself, but then you've also got these real life younger versions of yourselves in terms of younger Asian American journalists who are coming up to you at AAJA and are asking for your advice at how to make it in this industry. But but what do you say to someone like that? You know, particularly who like it sees a form of kinship with you that your writing is actually openly trying to negate at times. Right. Well, I think that those connections are real, you know, because we are called what we are and we are identified as what we are, right? And so I get it. I do think that there are probably some ways in which they are struggling in an industry in the same way that I struggled in an industry, right? Um, and I don't know. I don't, I, I do get these questions from time to time and, you know, I'm always thankful about it, you know, and I think I always just tell the people like, you know, I don't know, write something that would make me mad. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I don't know. Cause I feel old, you know, and I sometimes see it, you know, where I'm just like, that's the future, you know, and, and it's going to make me look like the oldest, most like stodgy, stupid person in the world. And this person is going to make a living, you know, dining out and just bashing me because of for being out of touch and everything like that. And um, I think it's coming. You know, I welcome it. You know, I really do. You know, I'm waiting for it because like it's just like, well, I can go do a different life then. You know, I can go. <laughs> 
I could go do something else. But um, yeah, um, I see them. I see them coming. And I am like sort of a person who's just like, we should think about class a lot. And I think the new version of it actually has like a probably better class analysis than I do, you know. Now, whether or not those people will be readable, you know, is another question. Um, I think eventually they will be. But right now, you know, it's a lot of theory. But uh, I do see that I do see the next wave coming. You're part of the freshman class of New York Times newsletters. So when you've been doing this, how long, how often do you publish the newsletter? Two times a week. Okay. So like, what does that do to your process when you're like doing it on like a a three day lead time? Uh, It's been kind of like fun. I don't know. I kind of like the fast pace of it. Uh, I try and write like 3000 words, 4000 words a week, which is a lot, you know, but I have a lot of thoughts and talking to people and making sure my thoughts are right or changing them because I think they're wrong. Like what more does one want out of an intellectual life, right? I do work way more than I used to, you know? I used to have like four hours a day where I just sit around and just be like, okay, you know, like what is life about? And I don't really have that anymore. I don't know. It's good work. I'm one of these writers who like actually just enjoys sitting and typing. I don't know. I remember when I worked at the New York, I talked to an editor there and he's like, you know, like there's some writers here who you can't draw a word out of, right? Because they hate writing. They're just reporters. And then there's some people who just close the door and they smile as they type and they like are very pleased with themselves as they're typing. I'm one of the latter people, you know, like I'll write a sentence of a like, great sentence. <laughs> or then I'll write some sentence of like, that one's not so good. How do I fix it? I'm like, good job. You fixed it. And so I don't know. I get a lot of pleasure out of writing. So I don't, I don't mind it that much. What, what makes a good idea that you can like fully articulate the same week you started on it? Like what, what are the ingredients of a successful newsletter? I don't know. You know, the one I thought was successful was I did one on like sort of standardized testing and what are some of the myths of standardized testing? You know, like that's one, like you kind of want to be contrarian in a way, not in like a way that's annoying, but you want to like sort of puncture myths, right? Popular myths. I think that's where sort of the newsletter format is at its best, right? Like the subsects I read are just kind of like, all right, well, what's true and what's not true, right? And and the idea of it, and you know, it's a little more complicated because obviously mine is associated with the times, but like when I read a very good substack or I read a very good newsletter generally, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to figure out somebody's thinking who is not represented by like the mainstream, who has not been sort of processed through politeness machine or like a journalism machine, right? And, you know, there are a lot of people who I think are quite good who I don't even agree with. Like, so for example, you know, like the biggest one, obviously, you know, I don't agree with many of this person's views, but like I, you know, I understand why people read Slate Star Codex, for example, you know, because it is rigorous in a way that, um, you know, some people say it's not really rigorous, but I don't know. He reads a lot of scientific studies and stuff like that. And he processes it all for people who are skeptical, right? Now, is there a way to sort of replicate that in other communities or other other types of politics or other types of thought? I think so, you know? And so I think that, uh, I don't know, that's sort of my thought process behind it, you know? Um, I sort of like the longer substacks <laughs> that are just like garrulous, written by like graphomaniacs who <laughs> like sit around writing 9,000 words a day. <laughs> I like those, I like that I style. mean, you do identify something like, if the idea isn't a little contrarian, why are you writing a newsletter about it? Like, you can't write a newsletter that's like, I agree with the dominant thought on this. <laughs> no, I totally agree with that. It's the same thing as blogging used to be, right? Like, um, 
I I think about it and I look back on it and I'm just like, who are the bloggers that I liked? And I was like, okay, when um, my friend Nathaniel Friedman and some of my his buddies did that Free Darko blog, right? That that blog, for example, is like a corrective to NBA coverage at the time, right? And I don't know. I, I think that like to get people excited about something and subscribe and to join in, right? That you need to sort of feel that way, even if you're not really, you know, like there are a lot of things that are like, I am the corrective to like X and X. And then you look and you're like, no, you're just saying the same thing everyone else does, but you kind of have to pose it that way. And so a lot of my time there is, is trying to figure out how to write something that will spark some type of conversation, I guess, which is like a horrible cliche, but it's just true. But also just to focus on things that have always made me mad, you know, where I'm just like, that's just not true, you know, and, and then just try and go from there. You do a podcast with two other people. What's the, what's the podcast called? Time to say goodbye. Time to say goodbye, which covers some of the same issues that are covered in the book. How is it different talking about this stuff every week as it unfolds, as opposed to telling this like 50 year cultural history? <laughs> that's a good question. I don't know. We started the podcast and we didn't know that anyone was going to listen. And then it turned out some people listened. And so we, and then those people ended up being nice. And some of them are friends now. And so there's like a community around the podcast that is wonderful, you know, and I find edifying. I don't think I'll ever stop because I feel like I'm talking to my friends. And I don't know. I think that's such a rare, I've never felt that way about anything else I've done. Sometimes when we were doing a crypto podcast, I felt that way, you know, because we also had a lot of very nice listeners, you know. But uh, I think that's the difference is that when you do audio, you if you reach a point where you feel like you're happy with it, it's because you feel like you're talking to your friends, you know. And I think writing newsletters would ideally be somewhere between writing articles and audio in terms of your kind of writing to your friends, you know, and these people know you. And then there's a book, which is supposed to be like this object, right? And in 2021, it's like objects are more rare, you know, communities are more common. And so which one do I think will have more impact, the book or the podcast or the articles that I write? I don't know, you know, but I will say that the bar for the book is higher. Like, I think that anybody who writes books should, you know, understand that, right? That it's harder to be like an object, right? In a world where everything is moving towards communities. Yeah, I mean... What seems like the hardest thing to pull off is the general interest space. I mean, to bring this back to the sports metaphor, when you first listen to sports radio, they don't have like sports radio for beginners where they explain the rules. You just jump right into Mike Francesa, like yelling about something. And you're like, I don't know what this guy's talking about. And then you listen for a while and you catch the sort of rhythm of what's happening. And in a way... I'm like, if I was going to be interested in any issue, I think I'm more interested in like dropping in on the time to say goodbye conversation, whatever it is that week, than the like generalist explainer culture. Like this is for someone who's never attended this class before. Yeah. Yeah. Look, um, I don't know. I, 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 I think that it is inevitable that we're going to go to that place, right? Where most people are going to consume things that way. And, you know, whether it's clubhouse or whatever, I don't know what form it'll take. Right. But I don't know. I think it's the sort of the writing's already on the wall in a lot of ways. And um, 
I don't know. I think it's like, I think there's two things that are true. The first is that it's a much better, it's a much better setup for creators, right? Like I said, uh, I do podcasts and I do it with two of my friends and we have a lot of listeners. We talk to our listeners all day on Discord. You know, we have about 800 people, 700 people on our Discord and they talk to each other all day long. It's like all good vibes, you know, like that whole like space is good vibes for me. You know, like I'm happy in it and I feel like I had a big part in creating it and we don't really aggressively market it in terms of like, hey, sign up for like $5 a month or something like that. But we still make enough money that if like, we don't make enough money to live, but we make enough money where if like Tammy, Andy and I are 21 years old or 22 years old, we could live off of it, you know? We had, there's a comfort there where you're like, okay, this is a space where we can sort of not craft it in a way where we have to reach every, try and reach everybody. And I don't know, I think it's an interesting thing in journalism now that if you can just do that, then it, it kind of makes you freer. You feel better, you know? You don't have to do as many edits. Like you don't, uh, not that the edits are the problem, but like you are speaking in a way that you feel is more authentic to yourself. And I don't know, I think a lot of these substackers are are doing that in ways that are effective, right? Like uh, some of the ones I read where I just like, I don't even have to read any introduction. I just want to get right into like the argument that the person's going to make that I know they're going to make. And I think it's very hard to like, have a taste of that type of thing for a lot of people who are doing this or these things and then go back to just being like, okay, you know, think about the X reader, you know, and what they're really asking you to do is like picture a lawyer on a train, you know, on the Acela from like New York to Boston. And, and uh, he wants to read one good thing, you know, like you need to explain to him what all these things are because he doesn't know, you know, like, I don't know, like it, it's, it's hard to imagine that that is going to be like uh, a large part of, of how people consume things in the future. Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess like all people who are about my age, when they hit their forties as journalists, they're like, how do I catch up to the kids? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I think I'm going through my, like, how do I catch up to the kids moment? I mean, you know, just to be parallel old, like you cited early on, the inspiration you found in uh, people like Joan Didion and new journalists like Tom Wolfe, that happened more than 50 years ago. So for people who are 20 years younger than us, that is like something that happened in the like 1940s or 19, <laughs> you know, when we were kids, I was not very interested in, in the 1940s and like whatever kind of like, yeah, you yeah. know, AJ Liebling, right? Yeah. AJ Liebling or whatever was <laughs> yeah. happening then. But like, I guess it's easy to just sort of get frozen in the like eternal present of your cultural moment and be like, no, no, like late 60s magazine journalism, it'll never fade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. it has to fade. Like all these things have to fade. And the things that take their place are like, yeah, discords or who knows, you know? Right, right. Right. I still think that magazine journalism can have a huge power, as was evidenced by this kidney story, for example, that everyone is talking about for a week, right? If that was like a podcast or something like that, maybe, I mean, I guess people talked about serial forever, right? But, you know, you have about five of these a year, I would say, right? These huge stories. And I still think that magazine journalism can be really powerful and important, like, you know, like Asmat Khan and her story about 
sort of the uncounted people who were who were bombed by the United States and you know like that that blew my mind you know it's just like how how does a person do this you know and how does a person put together something that's this good right so I, I don't want to make it seem like I'm bagging on the future magazine journals and I'm not you know like they're examples of it and people who do it much better than me but I guess just for myself right as somebody who likes to get in arguments as somebody who does talk about myself quite a bit as somebody who does not go to Afghanistan to do these amazing things I don't know I, I do think that sometimes the future lies in in something different and I think that it's still okay to do both right it's okay to try and create objects like books and I think it's okay to do podcasts but you know, it just means that you spend so much of your time creating content that uh, the, fe- the, the, <laughs> the downside is maybe you lose yourself, you know? Sometimes I think about that. I'm just like, I do have these moments where I'm like walking around. I'm just like, who am I <laughs> at this point? <laughs> like, you know, am I recognizable to myself anymore? And generally the answer is no. You know, just like I have no idea what happens on any given day or like, you know, what the contours of my life are anymore. So yeah, I, I do sometimes feel swamped by it. Yeah, I there was a year where we were doing coin talk together and I was doing this show and I was also doing another show. And I was like, I'm just the sum of my three podcast personas, like, you know, sort of like a shock jock can't turn it off. I just started to kind of become like a, a podcast uh, persona and a, and a podcast persona is not a particularly like introspective way to live. No, yeah, I, 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 I feel that way sometimes about writing. It's like, I don't know, sometimes I think about the things that I talk about with my family or, you know, I think I'm just very different. I mean, you know me pretty well. Like, I think on the page, I'm much more thoughtful and kind and sympathetic. And then sometimes, like in person, like I don't talk about anybody's feelings at all, you know? But that's, I guess that's always been true. I don't know if it's been deepened by the fact that I write so much now, you know? I don't think so. I think it just means that, especially since I'm not, you know, the newsletter is really just, you know, it's about stuff that happens in the news. Um, and things that I find interesting, especially around housing and stuff like that. It's not like I have like some sort of suppressed housing takes that I'm like therapeutically <laughs> like putting out there to the world. But uh, some of my other writing, I do feel that way about. Just like, who am I? You know, am I the am I the the person who's writing these things, or am I the person who like uh, sulking around? Um, I don't know. It's it's difficult. Well, um, thank you for bringing your podcast persona uh, to the show again. <laughs> this is the third one. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, thanks. It's always great talking. And that was the long form podcast. Thanks to Jake Hang. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to our editor, Jackie Sajiko, our intern, Noel Matier, everyone at Vox Media, and of course, our good friends over at MailChimp. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. 
In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.